Welcome to Dad Shit Show, a podcast about overcoming trauma. I'm Emma Castle. Thanks for joining me today. Welcome to the show, John Maddox. John Maddox is the author of Against All Odds, and he is also the survivor of the 2004 tsunami in southern Sri Lanka. Uh, welcome to the show, John. Hi, Emma. Great to be here. Thank you so much. Okay, so it was Boxing Day. You're in southern Sri Lanka. What were you doing there? Uh, yes, I was on assignment, actually, as a travel writer. Um, I've been travel writing for quite a number of years. Yeah, I was in a place called Tangal, uh, the very southern tip of Sri Lanka. And as you know, Sri Lanka is shaped like a teardrop. And uh, Tangal is at the very bottom of that teardrop. And uh, I was at this rather remote spot, about four kilometres out of town. Um, beautiful place, idyllic. In fact, Lonely Planet had said it was their favourite beach bolt hole in the whole of Sri Lanka. And that's one of the things that attracted me there. But, of course, I wasn't thinking tsunami at the time. Um, So all that was idyllic. It had the Indian Ocean on one side and it had uh, a major attraction of the area, which was this absolutely uh, beautiful lagoon which stretched for a number of kilometres and was hundreds of metres wide. And it was right behind our resort. So the resort consisted of half a dozen cabanas and a little restaurant. So resorts are rather grandiose title for it but um and it was situated as i said in this beautiful spot where the lagoon had lots of wildlife and uh so i was hoping to get some nice stories out of that but uh unfortunately it wasn't the best place to be in a tsunami in fact it was probably one of the worst because with the ocean on one side 300 meters or so of flat land with a few cabanas on it and then a 200 meter wide lagoon behind there was nowhere to go (laughs) nowhere to escape from so uh, wow. that was an issue. And, uh, yeah, so I was down there. I was in Sri Lanka. I had a number of commissions from magazines uh, to get stories, um, you know, the usual things, um, go into Colombo, then move down through uh, through the coast, down past Gaul, and uh, find somewhere remote, then go up through the, the tea country and then up to, um, you know, the more traditional um, spots in the centre. So uh, I didn't ever get that far. I just got down the coast. Right. So how long had you been in Sri Lanka when this happened? I'd been there about a week. And, um, uh, yeah, we spent about three days in Colombo. I'd, uh, in fact, I was hesitant to go there because if you cast your mind back to those times, there'd been the war going on for a long time. And there'd been a ceasefire for about a year or so, which had been hosted by the Norwegians, I think. And um, it was a very tenuous situation because the ceasefire kept being broken in small ways. And just before we were due to go there, there was a bombing at a major um, festival, rock festival. Um, And uh, so we, we opened the paper on the morning. We're meant to be flying in. And there was a report about this with a number of people killed. And we thought, well, is this the start of the war again or, or not? We tossed up whether to go at all. But we did end up, uh, you know, taking the chance, thinking, oh, no, it was just a one-off incident, got to Colombo, spent two or three nights there and uh, then made our way down the, down the coast, as I said, to, to Tangal. So probably been there about a week um, and we'd spent three or four days in Tangal before the tsunami hit. 
Right. And when you say we, who were you traveling with? I was traveling with my, my then wife, uh, Cheryl, and um, we, uh, yeah, she, she was a journalist as well. Um, okay. She was a gardening writer. And uh, yeah, we, we'd done a lot of travel together over the years. So we're fairly, fairly experienced. In fact, our first trip was hitchhiking from Sydney to India when we were quite young. So um, we'd seen, you know, various places uh, in all sorts of countries and taken all sorts of uh, risks on dodgy airlines and, you know, tramp steamers and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but we didn't know what was about to become the riskiest of all situations coming up. Yeah, right. So what happened? How did how did it all happen for you? Well, uh, I was actually encouraged by the owner of uh, the place where I was staying, Miriam. Um, she was a German lady and she'd said, I think, John, you should go out and photograph the sunrise. So on Boxing Day, I got up really early, went out and photographed the sunrise. And I remember coming back and taking some photos of the rather nice restaurant which had a thatched roof and I saw a squirrel running over the top. Yeah. And I remember the sun was behind me. I was getting my... Um, shadow out of the shot, that sort of thing. Then went in, when it opened, got a cup of tea, took, took one back to Cheryl in the cabana, then uh, fell asleep. Um, and around 9.25, uh, Cheryl woke me up screaming, what's that noise? It sounded like a jet plane hanging over the yeah. top of the cabana. And um, I woke up, you know, from deep sleep, tropical sleep. And we dashed to the window um, and we saw the first wave, which is about half a metre high, uh, running across the ground outside our room. And um, as our cabana was only 25 metres from the ocean, uh, I thought at first, oh, look, this is just a freak wave. And I saw one of the workers there, a young guy running in front of it, who was kind of halfway up the cuff, his leg and so forth. So I didn't think too much about that. But then um, as we were standing there, a second wave came in and our cabana was at 90 degrees to the ocean. So uh, there were some steps. There was a veranda and then a few steps down. And it came, the second one came up to our window ledge and I was busy closing the window ledge. And at this point, I was starting to think something really serious is going on here. Yeah. And we were both standing at the window. We turned and we just saw this uh, 10 metre high wall of water a couple of hundred metres away coming straight at us. Cheryl started screaming, you know, we're going to die, we're going to die. And uh, she wanted to run and um, went to the went to the door and opened it and I had to yell because it was so noisy, don't go, don't shut the door, um, because she didn't swim. <laughs> and secondly, uh, there wasn't anywhere really to go. And I, I didn't have time to think all of that through. It was just sort of um, running on instinct and response because the brain goes into all sorts of, uh, interesting states with all the chemicals running around and, uh, you know, you've got a lot of adrenaline and noradrenaline and other chemicals pumping into your brain and into your system, um, which are trying to keep you alive, of course, but at the same time uh, you're making decisions where you're not really thinking things through necessarily, you're just reacting and responding. So, um, yeah, and then uh, I turned around and I realised that the highest point in the room we had the bed was a concrete base with a thin rubber mattress on it, which was the highest point. And um, I said, look, let's get back on the bed, you know, we'll get back on the bed. So we got back on the bed and as we turned around, the window smashed in, the door came flying off 
and uh, from the base, actually, the bottom of the door came in first and the whole door came across, hit me in the shoulder. Um, the windows at the side of the room smashed out and uh, Cheryl got knocked off the bed. She was doing tumble turns under the water and I was trying to grab her. I was slammed against the, uh, the back wall and it just filled up very rapidly and it was a, uh, a cantilevered ceiling. So I took a breath, pushed off the bed and on the way up grabbed her and we ended up near the ceiling and the, uh, the water was going around and around like we were in a washing machine and things were floating past, you know, cupboards and a lamp and, you know, travel bags and all this sort of thing go swirling around and around. And we're holding up, clinging on to each other up there and, and Cheryl's screaming, you know, we're going to die, we're going to die. <laughs> and, and I'm saying, no, we're not, no, we're not, trying to convince her and myself that we weren't going to die. But it was, yeah, I mean, uh, it was absolutely terrifying, of course, and I was thinking at the time, uh, if this closes out, because we only had probably half a metre of air or less um, near the ceiling, and I was thinking, if this close closes out, which it looked like it was going to, I was going to grab her, tell her to take a breath and go down and try and go out the window that had been smashed out and um, take the chances outside. And um, people have said to me, you know, how long were you up there? And I really, I really don't know. I can't answer that. It's, uh, it's one of those things where time takes on a completely different dimension. And uh, I've read about, for example, people being in car accidents and they've said, oh, I was in the car, I was trapped in the car for half an hour. But the police report says, no, they're actually there for seven minutes. So, you know, time takes on a very, <laughs> can expand and contract. And that was happening, uh, you know, as we were swirling around, um, I had no idea about the time, but it seemed to expand to some degree and in my sense. And, uh, and finally, uh, the, the mattress came up and the rubber mattress were clinging onto that and uh, suddenly all the water went out and we just landed with a thump on the concrete floor. Yeah. And staggered outside. <laughs> wow. So what did you see when you got outside? Well, that was interesting. I, I was actually, um, I, the veranda was smashed up. The, the room, there were two rooms in, in the cabana uh, building that we had. And uh, one of them just all completely gone. Um, and so that was, I was just looking out where I normally saw the end of the building, all I was seeing was the ocean or what was the, the ocean, had, the water had actually gone back out by hundreds of metres exposing rocks in the ocean and so forth. Uh, and before that, it had gone over two kilometres inland, uh, which I found out later. So it had taken a lot of debris with it and what I saw was like a nuclear-level destruction when I came out of there. The other buildings, except for one other building, uh, which had just been finished being built, um, was completely, they were all completely destroyed. And there were uh, four or five staff members sitting on top of this new two-storey building. And the manager, whose name was Preeky, uh, came down a coconut tree. And as I was taking a piss off the end of the veranda, he said, um, how are you alive? The, the water went right over your cabana. How are you alive? And I said, Preeky, I don't know. but." Apparently, I said, if I'd known the uh, 
If I'd known the waves here were so big, I would have bought my surfboard. I think there were a few. <laughs> more, <even laughs> well. So you made a joke. <laughs> Did he laugh? Yeah. I, actually, no, he looked a bit stunned and a bit surprised. And uh, I found out later, about a year later, actually, I, I knew many people, well, quite a few people there had been, been killed or disappeared. But while he was up the top of the coconut tree, he'd watched two members of his staff be washed into the lagoon around and then out to sea. So, you know, I think he had lots of other things on his mind as well as the whole of his uh, property being pretty much destroyed. And um, so we were standing there and I, I knew what it was. They, um, the Sri Lankan people there didn't really know. They hadn't had a tsunami for 2,000 years. So uh, I knew it was a tsunami and I said, it's called a tsunami, we've got to go. And, uh, did you think it was going to come back? Did you think, okay, yes. we've got a short amount of time to get out of here? Precisely, exactly right. And to compound that sense of urgency, uh, Miriam had disappeared. We couldn't find her anywhere. And Miriam was uh, Pretty's partner as well, so he was fairly distraught. We were trying to find a few missing people. Um, and when it was obvious that they weren't there, we just had to presume that they were they were dead um, or had been washed well and truly inland. So we, I said to them, look, after maybe five or ten minutes looking around, I said, we've really got to go. It will come back uh, or it can come back. So we knew there was a road about two or three kilometres up the beach which came across the lagoon. And, um, so I thought if we get up to there, we might find the road and get be able to get inland because there's no way we're going to cross the now very um, swollen um, uh, lagoon. So we're at the beach and on the way um, we ran into a few other people who'd, uh, who'd survived, a few other Westerners as well as some Sri Lankan people. And... Um, yeah, we also had uh, ran into a Sri Lankan couple who were very, very upset. And when I, I worked out when I was talking to them that they they just lost their five children, so they they were completely distraught. And so, yeah, the, the sound of their uh, voices and wailing is something I won't forget. But um, so we're all we're all standing there, and then somebody yelled, "The water is coming back!" And at this stage, I was down behind the sand dunes looking for a way out. And the water actually did start to come back in. So I pushed the, the Sri Lankans up a tree, pushed shore up another one. By that stage, um, the water was up to my chest and I was looking around for something to <laughs> grab onto when it fortunately went back out. So it was just like the ocean sort of equalising itself or something. It was a strange, strange phenomenon. And we were trapped on the beach for about another, uh, I suppose, 20 or 30 minutes when some local villagers uh, came down, they they came across, they knew how to get across the lagoon. They pulled themselves across on some fallen um, telephone wires. Mm. These, telephone, um, these telephone wires were on concrete stands and the concrete had fallen over and these guys pulled themselves across. But when I saw the wires, I thought, oh, maybe it's electricity and yeah. I didn't want, to, didn't want to touch them. So we, we, in the end we pulled our way across, got a bit inland and, uh, yeah, got off the beach. Okay, so what sort of time frame are we talking about here? So from the time this happened to when you managed to reach inland and felt a little bit safer, how long are we talking here? I think we're talking about uh, probably 45 minutes to an hour. 
So it hit at 9.25 um, their time. Um, and uh, I don't think we'd have been off the beach fully until about um, going on 10.30. And we were all very much uh, bedraggled and we didn't, we'd lost everything, all our uh, bags and so forth had washed out to sea, our phones were gone, cameras and so forth, which I was really hunting around for a camera at this stage, of course, being a journalist, but um, couldn't find one. And uh, so, yeah, we were just then standing on a road in this village which was largely destroyed, wondering what to do and where to go and, <laughs> and feeling stunned and so forth when uh, a woman from one of the hotels uh, where I first stayed down there the first couple of days um, saw us, came up to us and said, um, my parents live inland, should all come up there, we'll go inland and uh, it's higher up so if it comes again we'll be, we'll be safer. Yeah. So did so we you have up, a car or you walked up? No, no. We, we walked up the road. And we, I mean, you understand what Asian chaos can be like and there were tuk-tuks running everywhere and people lost and tuk-tuks trying to run, trying to drive down to the town, but then they come across a tree that was falling across the road, turn around and go back the other way and so forth. So it was quite, it was quite uh, dramatically chaotic as well. And um, I remember walking up the road and I saw a, an older lady as I was walking up the road, just sitting in the entrance to her largely destroyed house, sitting on the front step. And I looked at her and she looked at me and it was just one of those moments where you go across cultures and so forth. Here's this big Western guy walking down through her village. She's sitting in the front of her destroyed house. But we set us kind of understanding and it was, it was that type of situation. We're all in the same boat, no matter where we come from or what our backgrounds were. And as we walked up the road, um, we're standing wondering how we we're going to get some transport when a van pulled up. Someone started knocking on the inside of this combi van and we walked across the road and opened it and it was Miriam, the owner of the place, and she had been washed completely across the lagoon and inland uh, about a kilometre and she had bad lacerations on her legs and she was looking for a... Uh, a clinic to, to go to and she, she knew where there was one but she, um, she'd she stopped to you know speak to us and so we opened the slid open the side of the combi van had a quick chat to her and then um, she kissed the inside of the window we kissed the outside of the window and she took off so it was so Creaky you know, was with you at that time yeah uh, no he wasn't he wasn't but he, he found out fairly soon that that she was alive. So that was one of the, the, the strange things that um, well, during therapy later that I, I came up against and, uh, and had to try and work through, which was this sense of what psychologists call uh, expansion and contraction with splintering. And so the expansion was you'd think someone was dead and they, you'd find out later they were alive. So instead of that detachment where you know somebody's dead, you know, or you think somebody's alive and find out later that they're, they're dead. So this was this happened within the 24 hours after the event. That happened to me a lot. I heard about people. I heard about people I knew. I'd met people who were in, working in the uh, hotels and resorts and so forth that I'd met. Um, the owner of the first resort had come back from, he lived in Germany. He was a Sri Lankan man. He was married to Germany, came back, 
to do one week's um, renovations on his resort and he got killed. Uh, and I'd met him just before I left that resort. Um, things like that. So you, you kept hearing this sort of news and then you'd hear, then you'd be thinking, oh, so-and-so, I wonder what happened to so-and-so and they would maybe turn up or you'd hear that they were okay or the opposite. And uh, this, you know, that's sort of... Um, yeah, it was it was interesting over that period of time. It happened a lot, and um, I'd uh, as I was walking up the road when we got first in land, I saw a, a man standing um, in a pair of shorts, and he had some cuts on his chest. And the only thing that had survived in my room was my medical kit, strangely enough. So I walked yeah. up to him. Turns out he was a Brit, and I got some um, betadine out of my medical kit and started putting it on his chest. And he told me that he was clinging to a tree and his partner of some years, she was on a tree behind him. And then when he turned around, she was gone and he thought she'd gone inland. And so we spent a lot of time looking for that, for her partner, his partner. And in fact, um, uh, we slept in the same room as him uh, that first night. And, you know, he was having quite a bad time emotionally. And uh, of course, uh, unfortunately, three months later, they found out, found the body of his partner and that, that, that sort of thing was, you know, going on and you were close up to it and you were experiencing people's grief or uh, re- emotional reactions or relief if, if their partner was okay and so forth. Yeah. Was it kind of the best of times and the worst of times in a way because you've, you've escaped death, you've met, narrowly yeah. escaped death and there's lots of people around you who their loved ones haven't been so fortunate so do you, how do you feel like do you feel lucky or do you just feel devastated or do you just feel overwhelmed like what what are you feeling at that point um well first yeah it was it was there's some sense of uh having survived um and uh but there is that overwhelming shock and you have so much adrenaline going um having had a uh, an extreme near-death experience. I mean, when you saw the tsunami actually coming 10 metres high at you, there was, and no escape, there was definitely a sense of um, you're facing certain death, you know, uh, and uh, apparently there are only three responses to this, and that's fight, flight, or freeze. And um, Cheryl had the flight response, I had the fight response, but Many, many people, apparently of the 230,000 or more who, who died on that day, um, had the freeze response. Um, and that's uh, particularly small children. I mean, women and children were very high in the numbers who, who died. And um, say in Sri Lanka, many of them um, were too modest to take clothes off, for example, and they, they wear saris and um, they have long hair and, you know, things, you know, so it, they get caught up and so forth. And um, children, apparently, a lot of them froze at that time and, you know, they take a big shock breath in and that would be it. Um, so there's, yeah, many reports came out from various agents. So it was overwhelming shock. And um, when I came back with uh, acute, um, yeah, acute stress disorder or acute traumatic stress um, which can lead to PTSD if you you know if you don't do anything about it. 
Right. So how long did it take to get home? Like what, what happened? Like, where did you stay? And you know, what are you thinking at this point? Because maybe a bunch of people at home are thinking you're dead, you know, cause they've heard yes. about the Sri Lankan tsunami. And so how did you kind of manage that process of letting people know you're okay, but also getting home? Yes. That's, you know, that's, that's a very, very, um, very, very interesting point. And it's right on my, my experience because we got back to um, the house and these Sri Lankan people were fantastic. We're then probably about three kilometres inland and quite high up, so the chance of being hit by another tsunami were, were remote. These people were great. They, they sort of, it was a small bungalow and they gave us the, uh, the room. So there were about eight or nine Westerners staying there. They sort of sat up in their courtyard outside most of the night and um, they didn't have much in the house. They weren't wealthy people. So they put a couple of saris on the floor and Cheryl and I lay on the concrete with a sari underneath and uh, they put a sari as a doorway in the door. And there's one bed there, like one of those rope beds, and um, James, the, uh, the fellow who'd lost his partner, uh, was sleeping on that because he had some injuries as well. I just about got to sleep when someone knocked on the door and said, you know, Mr. John, Mr. John, come and speak. And waiting for me outside in candlelight because the electricity had gone um, was this lady who'd come down to retrieve the body of her brother who was the owner of the first place, the place called the Nature Resort where I'd first stayed and he'd been killed. She was, she was quite upset. So I'm standing in the candlelight at about one in the morning talking to this lady who's saying, did you know my brother? He was such a wonderful man. We had this conversation. Um, but she had come down with some relatives in a van and the next day I said to her, would it be okay if we got a lift back to Colombo because my children will no doubt think we're dead. They, we'd spoken to them on Christmas Day and said, we're in this wonderful tropical paradise down here right by the ocean. And, of course, <laughs> they would have realised exactly where we were and exactly that that was the worst possible spot in Sri Lanka to, uh, to face the tsunami. In fact, 7,000 people got killed just along that 40-kilometre uh, stretch of beach. So, of course, the newspapers back in Australia, which people had saved for me, were just gradually, oh, yes, 200 people, 1,000 people, 2,000, 3,000, you know. It was going up exponentially <clears throat> over the time. And um, so I, this lady said, yes, you can see. It was a... Um, Toyota High Ace van, and it ended up with about 16 of us in it. And we drove up the inland and uh, got back to Colombo Taj Samudra Hotel. I'll give them a plug because they're wonderful people. And they, um, they'd been hosting me uh, when I first arrived in Colombo. But what had happened, Emma, was, you know, all these people had arrived the day of the tsunami or before it to go on their annual holiday from all over the place. And, of course, they had come to the hotel. The hotel was completely full and there were people trying to get into the hotel. And so I rolled up and looking absolutely, you know, with bedraggled clothes and tears and clothes and, you know, nothing else, walked into all these holiday makers who were sitting in the foyer, you know, kind of staring at us like, oh, you know, where did these people come from? And, um, and we had nothing. So I walked up to the, uh, I walked up to the, um, the desk and I said, look, you know, I can use that phone over there if you want to ring the Australian High Commission. The Australian High Commission had a, 
they'd made a mistake and put a recording on which said, if you want, if you wish to get a visa for Australia, please come between the hours, you know, that sort of thing. Oh, and so uh, in the end, somebody came down from... <laughs> but they, in the end, they turned out to be extremely helpful. And I think it was just a, 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 you know, an honest mistake. Yeah, so these, uh, the, in the end, one of the staff came down um, from the office and said, come with us. And so we went back into the office and I said, can I ring Australia? So I rang my son who uh, had for 36 hours thought we were dead, uh, as did my daughter. And um, so I'm on the phone and it was a big open office. There were probably 50 or 60 people working in this big open area. And I'm having some very emotional conversation with my son, you know. And then uh, I put the phone down and I turned around and everybody was in tears, you know. All these people were, were you know, and of course they had all uh, had relatives who'd been affected as well it's not so well known in australia but sri lanka was the second worst place hit uh, after Aceh. Thirty-six thousand people died in sri lanka and so everybody knew somebody or had a relative or a friend or who was affected by this tsunami in the end of course um uh, we did manage to get a room and they were very kind to us uh, gave us a car the next day to go and get some necessities and so forth. Um, and then we went down to the Australian High Commission. They were very good as well. And after four or five days, uh, Qantas did a, a run into uh, Colombo. Yep. And, but you had no money and no ID and no passport. Uh, How did no, they I'm, work all that stuff out? Well, for most people that was a problem. But for me, as I said at the, at the beginning, um, I've been down photographing, and in those days, in 2004, I was still using film. So I had, my, I had my bum bag on, and I was putting film canisters into it. When I came back to the room, I fell asleep with it on, and it also had my passport. It had both our passports in it and, uh, and my visa card and, and some cash. I was the wealthiest guy in the, <laughs> in the Australian High Commission. Well, most of the others back at the, uh, the Sri Lankan people's house in, in Tangor didn't have anything. So I, I ended up going down to the markets and buying, you know, food and cigarettes. And, you know, I turned out people who'd never smoked before was suddenly smoking. It was one of those sort of things. So, yeah, I was able to, um, yeah, buy some, some biscuits and some bread and, you know, a few other bits and pieces for everybody, which was lucky. So I was lucky and I had my ID. But what the Australian government did at that time was they gave people a certain amount of money to get, I think it was $100, and uh, to buy essentials, and um, then they were quite quick at reprocessing their passport situations, even though, you know, terrorism was an issue at that stage. Yeah, right. So how many of you were there? Did you meet the other people, like the other Aussies? Yeah. Yes, definitely. Yeah, one of my <laughs> my favourite memories when I first went down, uh, they offered you a cup of tea or a cup of coffee, and we're staying outside, sitting on some nice lounges and so forth near a swimming pool. But just inside, there was an area where there was a slightly um, like a caged area that had alcohol in it, which obviously we weren't um, getting access to. But I ran into this guy who was a surfer from uh, northern beaches of Sydney, and. Um, I was having a chat to him and he said, oh, mate, would you like a beer? And I said, well, there is no beer here. He said, oh, yeah, look, he said, I'll show you how to do it. And he went up to this uh, cage, managed to squeeze it open a little bit so he could get his hand just in, reach in for a, a can, get it back, squeeze it into shape and pull it out. And, <laughs> and, and Trust Aussie to figure that out. <laughs> yeah. 
Then I knew I was at home. You know, I knew I'd been. <laughs> this guy was out surfing when the tsunami hit. He got washed back out about two kilometres. And as he was paddling back in, all this debris and even bodies, and he could see a hotel where he was staying had been destroyed as he's coming back in. So he, you know, I said, mate, you'll be telling that story down at the Newport Arms for a few years. Wow. <laughs> yeah. What was the sense among everybody who was there? Was, was it kind of upbeat or was it, I mean, how were people feeling? Um, they were, yeah, mo- most people, it was pretty um, sombre in a way, but being Australian, it was like the recent bushfire situation. People rise to Australians have a, a very good record of voluntary, you know, volunteering and, and so forth. And uh, on day, I think it was the second day that I was hanging out down at the Australian High Commission, these two ladies came in with Anzac biscuits and they were expats living there. One was a Kiwi and one was uh, an Australian. So they decided on Anzac biscuits and they brought them down for us all to eat. And, you know, and then I, I noticed that, the, you know, we were getting people from other countries coming in, a few a few Germans, some Scandinavians, and I started talking to them and they said, oh, this this is the best place, you know. These these people understand. They, You know, our, our embassy is hopeless. They're just sitting on computers looking at them and doing nothing for us. And I thought, okay. So the Australians got a big tick right. in that sense. Mm. So you get on that plane and, you know, I guess what's – how long is the flight? I think it's about 14 hours. Was it a direct flight or did you have to go via Singapore? No. By Singapore, yeah. So we got into Singapore. Uh, I didn't get off the plane at that point. We were all pretty exhausted. There were about 60 years on the plane and um, some journalists actually were there. I think Channel 9 had got permission to be on it. Um, So they were wandering around the plane. The crew were very good. And, yes, when we got back to Sydney, they gave us the option of going out a side door rather than talking to the media. I'm guessing your kids were waiting for you somewhere. They were indeed, yes. And... uh, yeah, it was one of those moments, um, you know, where you want to kiss the ground when you get back to Australia, that sort of thing. Everything seemed very quiet. It was a holiday period, I guess, and, you know, the roads seemed to be fairly empty and I was just looking around thinking there's not much chaos going on here. So it was, yeah, it was very good to be back and get back into the uh, Blue Mountains at 1,000 metres. Right. So you unlock your door, you walk in, and then you're home. And then what happens then? Like, so I'm guessing a lot of your friends have heard that these things happen. Yes. Um, what happens then? Are you expected to kind of just go back to normal life or what then? Yeah, it's, it's a very good uh, question that yeah, I haven't been asked a lot because when, I, when we got back, a lot of our friends and neighbours had left food there for us and, you know, it was, very, it was really nice. Um, some wine, food, and, and so forth. It was a whole table full, and uh, yeah, which was which was welcoming and, and very nice. And of course, people want to know your story. And um, I did sit up on the first night talking to friends and neighbours about what had happened. But I found out later that uh, you can re-traumatize yourself by doing that. You know, by retelling it in, in that state of mind. Uh, because I was suffering what I didn't realise, uh, I had acute traumatic stress. So uh, we were working as, as journalists, I was doing a lot of editing and so forth. Uh, Cheryl had a column and so, you know, able to get back into that to some degree. But after the first, during the first few months, I would get triggered by loud noises. You know, it's often winds in the mountains and that wind sound was very much like the sound of the tsunami coming in. I noticed in the recent bushfires, people talk about the same thing, the sound of the fire coming at them being like a jet plane or, or you know, 
So that would I would wake up in the night sometimes and you know with a, a shock feeling and then realize it was okay. I was back in the Blue Mountains in, in Australia. I think my daughter had found out that they were offering free counselling for people who'd actually been hit by the tsunami. The government was supporting that, and so um, I briefly went to see somebody. I mean, it was a New Year time, so most of these people are on holidays, you know. We found somebody in, in uh, I think it was Nepean Hospital, who just said the basics, this will happen, that will happen, but they didn't know a lot about trauma. So, um, yeah, we, we gradually got back into it. Cheryl had uh, what they used to call in the Vietnam War, apparently, the thousand-yard stare, which is we're just looking off into the distance and not seeing anything. And she had that for a number of weeks, maybe about six weeks. So I took it upon myself to go out and do the shopping and things like that for for uh, a few weeks. Then I also had the thing rerunning in my mind like a movie from start to finish, you know. And every time it had rerun, uh, something else would come in, you know. Oh, what about those fishermen who used to live behind the sand dunes? And what about you know? And so my brain would be going over this, and uh, it was very hard to stop. It's like watching a B-grade, um, you know, action movie or something, except that you're, you're the protagonist in it and, you know, and it's going quite fast and it's going over and over again right through and then picking up different parts and so forth. And this happened for quite a few weeks and I kept thinking, oh, you know, this will go away, um, it'll wear off. Uh, then a few times, uh, you know, at that time of year, you often get sudden storms I'd be, and I'd be feeling I was underwater again. I'd have to pull over and, you know, just coincidentally after a couple of months, a friend had mentioned um, a psychologist who specialised in trauma and it was also in Katoomba. He, uh, he had a military background. I had no military background and I thought, oh, maybe that won't work so well. But I, I didn't end up going to see him and I, while I was sitting in the waiting room, I was thinking, what am I doing here? You know, I don't really need this. Um, you know, I'll be okay. Um, but I did and I went in and, uh, yeah, uh, it was a very, turned out to be a very, very uh, good experience over the next, on and off over the next year um, to avoid PTSD. He immediately picked up that um, I had acute traumatic stress and he said, look, um, if you don't do something about this, it can come back to bite you, not just now, but it can come back in years' time. Um, yeah, so we went through a process of um, involved cognitive behaviour therapy. It involved exposure therapy where you go back through the, uh, through the describing the whole situation. It involved mindfulness therapy. It involved um, you know, what they call down-regulating where you start doing a lot of breathing in the abdominal breathing and so forth, and uh, also something that I found quite useful called EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, as it stands for, mm -hmm. uh, where you can go back into the feelings that you uh, suppressed during that incredibly fast-moving chaotic incident, in my case. So I had probably uh, after a considerable amount of time with Darren, the psychologist, uh, he said, look, when you're retelling this story, there are half a dozen points at which your voice changes. I'd like to go back into some of those areas, which I think you still have some unresolved uh, issues. So mm. I'd like to use EMDR. So we used that and it simply involved him. It's not really hypnosis or anything like that, but it involves, you know, somebody with a, pen or something just in front of you and you go back into the feelings you had 
And um, I found that incredibly useful because I had no idea at all that I'd had these these feelings. And uh, one example for particular, Cheryl was about to run out the door and I yelled, shut the door. Mm-hmm. And, um, and she did shut the door and came back inside and then, you know, the tsunami hit and was smashed around and so forth. But I had no, I went back into that uh, incident when she was standing at the door and during EMDR, when I went back into the feelings, which is what you do in that process, what feelings were going on there, I discovered this was an incredible feeling of loss. It was like, you know, um, all the loss that you might have when you actually lose somebody through death or whatever compressed into a microsecond, you know, <laughs> into a couple of seconds. It was like such an intense feeling and and also mixed up with I'm never going to see her again, uh, you know, all sorts of uh, feelings of loss. Um, and then, you know, I was in that state for maybe a minute and came back out and he said, so what, what happened there? I said, oh, describe it to him. And before that I had no idea that that's what I had felt during that very fast-moving few seconds, you know. So yeah, when, like when I hear you speaking about this, you sound so composed. It's almost like when you said that you were actually hunting around for a camera, like like an hour after this thing happened, it's like part of you is trained so well as a journalist that it's almost like you sort of split out. Like it's like the journalist observation part of you split out and the, the John the man it's sort of like the journalist overtook the man there at some point, but the man's still there having this experience. Is that sort of what happened or? That's, that's you know, you've hit something right on the head there because um, I've told very few people this, but when I was up near the ceiling, flapping, going around and around uh, with incredible noise and facing very dire situation, something in my mind went, I'll write about this one day, you know? So what you're saying is exactly right. And when I came out, I was looking for a camera within minutes, not within an hour, um, because there's something about wanting to record it, you know, wanting to um, uh, testify to this situation to show people what what had gone on. And, in fact, back at the Australian High Commission, on about the second or third day, a camera crew arrived from Australia from Channel 7. People were sitting, you know, on on a bench further down inside the high commission and I saw people pointing towards me and then these guys showed up with their, you know, the, the camera guy, the producer and the, the journalist and they said, do you want to do it? And I said, oh, I need to do it if you say that they need a lot of help here at the end, you know. Mm-hmm. They didn't, of course, they, they did the interview and um, I did it for them but I said, you know, I, I really, there's, there's a lot of people down where I came from, down in Tangal, who are really struggling and, uh, I found out later many of them didn't get help for weeks. They didn't have food rights and so forth down there again. So, um, yeah, but that's right. There was that part of me that, uh, yeah, wanted – I just – I remembered it later. I thought, oh, I was up there near the ceiling and I'm thinking – Maybe I'll write about this one, but I don't know where those things come from. <laughs> well, it's a distancing strategy, isn't it? And But it doesn't yeah. stop the fact that you are still having this terrible experience and you're going to have to deal with it at some point. So, so I guess, like, did writing about it help? Was it therapeutic to write your book or... Uh, you know, like has talking about it helped or does it actually, as you said, sometimes re-traumatise you to go back through those? Um, yeah, look, uh, in the beginning um, I was advised not to, you know, if I met people in the supermarket or whatever because people had some 
strange result, you know, strange reactions. Uh, everything from, I guess you'll be sitting in the dark with a bottle of scotch for the next week, or, um, you know, uh, almost pull your socks up and get on with it. Or, um, you know, when you're up near the ceiling, did you have any uh, sudden enlightenment moment? Or, you know, and one journalist did an interview with this lovely guy, um, and he said, uh, when, when you're up near the ceiling, did you look at each other and did you say, I love you? I said, mate, there's a lot of Hollywood in that. Um, you know, imagine you're going down the, the freeway at 110 kilometres an hour. You have a blowout, the car flips, you've got your partner beside you, you're doing 110 kilometres an hour on the roof of the car heading towards a pylon. Do you sit down and say, I love you, or do you say, ah? Oh. <laughs> he said, right, I get the point. <laughs> I get the point. So, um, yeah, and he took, took that question out. But, yeah, I was facing all sorts of, of questions like that. And so I was advised in the end, look, you know, say to people, if you meet them, you know, up the street or whatever, everyone wants to know the story, that's fair enough. But say, look, oh, yeah, look, I'm in a bit of a rush. I'll talk later about that so you don't have to completely, um, at that stage, just weeks afterwards, go through the whole thing and, and relive it. Um, these days it's fine. I, I can do that without any problem. I've done a number of and interviews um, like this and appeared at, you know, the Happiness as Causes conference and, and all sorts of things. But one of the motives in writing the book was to, uh, the first half of the book is about the event itself and the second half is about um, how to recover and avoid, avoid PTSD to get that uh, message out because I did avoid PTSD quite successfully. As the psychologist said, you know, uh, trauma forces change, you know. It, it forces a complete reassessment of your life and the way we did it in therapy was to go back into my pre-existing belief system and we spent a lot of time on that um and by belief system i mean you know how i'd lived my life what i'd done with it not not belief as in um deities and so forth but mm. uh so working out my own personal worldview my own personal um belief system and then working out how how i'd acted during that traumatic incident related to that previous belief system and, you know, fitting it, fitting it back in. But along the way, I, I learned a lot about, um, you know, neuropsychology, limbic system, the way the brain works when it's trying to save you, um, the amygdala and the hypothalamus and all that sort of stuff that, that take over in that, um, in that traumatic situation. And, um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating stuff. And uh, there's a lot of advances that we're getting uh, through neuropsychology at the moment, which I think will eventually help a lot of people. Right. So do you still need to stay on top of this or is it sort of one of those things where you can actually just completely heal from it and you're done or is it something that you have to work at? You know, do, do you ever completely move on and do you feel like a different person to who you were before this happened? It's a yes. lot of questions. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's a few questions in there, but yes, look, to answer the last one first, yes, I think it does change you. I mean, as, as I said before, trauma forces change and you'll either change for the positive um, or you may slip into all sorts of behaviours that are negative, you know, like too much alcohol or drugs or, or whatever to, to try and deal with, you know, what they call maladaptive behaviours. So... Yeah, uh, it did change me. It changed me a great deal. And uh, I I said to this psychologist at one point when we were going through my previous belief system, 
and establishing what I'd done with my life and how I'd lived and what my friends were in my social group and, you know, uh, work and so forth. Um, I said, look, I, you know, I haven't done this for a long time. I've never, I haven't really consistently looked at all this stuff for a long time. He said, no, you've never looked at it. And he was absolutely right because you don't do that. You know, you don't sit down and say, oh, here I am. I'm so, such and such an age. What have I actually done? And then thoroughly go through it, you know. Um, and that was a very interesting experience. And it became a bit of a spiritual adventure in a way uh, because, as I said, I was taking on going through this process but also learning about myself and learning um, that trauma, this whole process can change you and you can free yourself up. It can be quite liberating once you, you understand what's happened to you and can start, you know, working with it. I found that very, very useful and it made me realise that, yeah, you can you can change things. You can, you've can got so many choices in life. You can... Uh, act on those choices, um, things that you may have put off, things that you may have not been happy with, you can get rid of, move on, you know, and, and uh, change lots of things in your life if, if you take, you know, if, if you look at it the right way and go through a process which is going to be therapeutic. Yeah. So I say to people, get help, seek it, seek help and, and do it straight away. You know, it's, it's no different to... Um, breaking your leg or something really. I mean, if you break your leg, you don't look at it and go, oh, I'll fix that myself. Um, you know, I'll just strap it up a bit, it'll be okay. You go and see an expert, you see a doctor, you know, and this suffering trauma uh, is the same sort of thing. It's like an injury and you may as well deal with it rather than say, oh, okay, I'll just suppress that. Uh, I'll just let it go, it'll be okay. And everybody's trauma is different. I mean, I had an extreme life-threatening trauma, but 70% of people apparently, uh, I think that's a US figure, will suffer trauma at some stage of their life. So, And, and their own trauma, whatever that is, whether it's a, assault or sexual assault or, you know, many, many different types of trauma, that's significant for them, you know, mm. and that's as significant as my particular thing was for me. So they need help in, in you know, those areas. Um, and like during the recent bushfire situation, you know, um, you asked me whether I'm on top of it or whether I come, well, sometimes I can be watching something and it will bring up emotional response. You know, I'll be looking at similar but different situations that people face when they're looking at um, 70 metre high fire coming at them or whatever, you know, and I can identify with that. And uh, like people like Andrew Constance, for example, I can I can understand what sort of, um, changes he may be going through and um, through just experiencing that. I believe he's giving up politics now. He's, you know, he's making changes. This is forcing a complete reassessment of, of your life. I don't think it'll ever go away completely. I don't think I'll ever not have a, an emotional response if I see something on television or hear something that may be, uh, you know, highly traumatic and that I can sympathise or identify with. I'm sure, you know, I'll always have that there. But I have avoided PTSD. I haven't got the extreme ongoing suffering that that causes. Right. So have you been back to Sri Lanka at all? Would you go back to Sri Lanka? Yes, I would. Um, Not right now (laughs) because of the coronavirus. uh, Getting in and out of the country might might be, you know, taking a while. But, um, yes, I I would like to go back to Sri Lanka and it's just the way things have worked out. Um, My first trip after the tsunami was... I think in 2005, towards the end, I went to Ireland and 
a trip for Tourism Island around Ireland. And, and you know, I was wondering about that. Well, actually, while I was in, in the air, the, um, the New Orleans um, thing happened, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was quite weird getting all the news about another water event. I'd like to go back to Sri Lanka. Just the opportunity hasn't really come up. I did have misgivings about doing that probably for the first four or five years, but now I think it would be, uh, be interesting. But when you go to the beach now, what do you feel? Um, well, that's, yeah, that's a very pertinent question because um, about two months after we got back, a mutual friend, another, another journalist, um, had a place on the Central Coast and invited us up there. The first time I walked on the beach after the event, people were, you know, relaxed and facing away from the ocean and reading newspapers. And, and I felt, I've got to warn these people, you know, um, turn around, keep your eye on the horizon. What are you, what are you doing lying around? You know? <laughs> there was that part of, part of me but like that. But now, of course, it's absolutely fine. And, um, you know, I've, I've stayed very recently down the south coast right on the beach, uh, realising that <laughs> the possibilities are, um, are not great, that something like that is going to recur while I'm there. But, uh, yeah, so I haven't, I haven't got any longer a problem with the beach. But initially, and Cheryl did too, actually, had, had some issues with, uh, with being on beaches. But I suppose that's, that's natural enough. I guess people after bushfires walking through burnt out landscape probably have a similar sort of feeling for, for a while. Um, but, um, yeah, now I'm absolutely fine. Yeah, okay. All right. So if people want to find out more about your experience, um, how can they find your book, Against All Odds? So it's freely available on um, Amazon and it's also out there on Smashwords. It's on, I think, uh, Fish Pond and Booktopia and, um, yeah, most of the, the major places. Also the publisher, uh, Mosh Pit as their um, site where you can buy it. And on Amazon, you can either um, get it as a uh, um, paperback or just download it for a few bucks. And, um, yeah, so it's it's been going pretty well. A lot of people seem uh, interested. And more and more people are interested in the part we've been talking about, the trauma side and the process of, um, of going through avoiding PTSD from acute traumatic stress particularly when I was at the, say, the Happiness and Causes Conference at the, uh, at the ICC last year. There were a lot of professionals there and I had many people um, come up and, and buy the book, which was good, and got a very good response on, on that second half of the book. Initially, when I came back, people wanted to talk about the, the event itself, about the tsunami and being hit by it. But more and more, the, uh, the focus has gone towards the uh, overcoming trauma aspect. Yeah. Yeah. So the book is called um, you know, It's the Odds, uh, surviving the world's worst tsunami and overcoming trauma. So there's, there's sort of two halves to the book. Thank you so much for your time and um, I hope I'll see you soon. You've been listening to That Shit Show. If you like what you've heard, head to the Facebook page or the website for more information. It's thatshitshowpodcast.com. You'll find show notes and more episodes to download. Thanks so much for joining me.